So here we are. We are um, going into our next portion of the series that we started at the beginning of the summer, Living Led. And today the title is Embracing God's Law of Liberty. Uh, we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. And so go ahead and start finding that with me. If you brought a Bible, or if you have a Bible app, or if your neighbor doesn't have one, just go ahead and share. But we're in the Gospel of Matthew. We've been looking for the ways that God is, or the, the ways that Jesus specifically, when he calls people to follow him, what does that look like? What does that mean? And so we've talked about different components. Well, the life that's led by God, uh, man, it goes into the wilderness. The life that's led by God, it, it is immersed in the word. The life that's led by God, last week, Matthew Martinez shared with us, it's noticed. It's like salt. It's like life. And today we're in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, and we're going to focus in on verses 17 through 20. Verses 17 through 20. When you found it, go ahead and say, Amen. All right. So Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20. A couple of months ago, I read this awesome book. Uh, Actually, I read it with a group of people. It's called Crucial Conversations. Has anybody ever heard of that? Yeah? Crucial Conversations. Okay. It's not a religious book. It's a secular book, but it's a book about communication skills. Amazing. Amazing book. I mean, it's very common sense, actually. (laughs) But it's uh, it's great to, to have those things kind of articulated. And uh, a crucial conversation, according to this book, is a conversation in which opinions are different, the stakes are high, and the emotions are high with it. Has anybody ever been in a crucial conversation? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Now it's been a while. Uh, Maybe just this morning on the way here. I don't know. (laughs) Right? Crucial conversations, differing opinions, stakes are high, meaning there's ramifications um, and or the emotions are high with it. Those, those crucial conversations happen even multiple times a day, right? In the home, in the workplace, at school, um, or maybe they're crucial conversations that have just kind of been lingering and you've needed to have these conversations for years, right? Um, but here's the thing. What's neat about this book is that it gives simple tools, and some of you guys can verify this, simple tools of how to enter into those situations and allow every party that's involved to feel safe. Do you understand what I mean by that? Because when we don't feel safe in a conversation, what's your tendency? Is it silence? Kind of back off, you withdraw? Or is it more like violence? Well, let me tell you. Okay, maybe maybe none of us are (laughs) like that. But here's the thing. In those crucial conversations, we want to make people feel safe. And so one of the tips that it talks about is uh, using the tool of contrasting. Hey, I'm not trying to say that the food wasn't good. I'm actually just trying to say that, you know, um, maybe we can do something that, that doesn't cause indigestion. No, I'm kidding. Anyway, <laughs> no, um, these are the kinds of things. What, when you're contrasting, you're saying what your intent is not in order to secure a safe environment. And in Matthew chapter 5, it's interesting because Jesus is using contrasting as he's addressing some sentiments that are rising to the top. Notice it, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. He starts with a contrasting statement. I'm reading from the New King James. It says this, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to what? Did you see it? He's saying what he's not here to do, and now he's saying what he is here to do. All right? So here's Jesus. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Why in the world would people start feeling unsafe in that situation where Jesus needs to clarify what's going on? 
Here's the thing. As Jesus, we, we talked about this a few weeks ago. As Jesus is on the mount, uh, you know, the, the Sermon on the Mount, he's kind of laying out um, the establishing or the, the foundational principles of, of what the kingdom of God is all about. And, you know, there's a mixed crowd there, people from all sorts of classes, uh, people lower classes, higher classes, uh, people who are far from God, people who are supposedly the religious leaders, and all of these things. And as Jesus is sharing these things, there's a sense of, of newness. You know, there's a sense of, wow, I've never heard this before. And for those who are familiar with the established norm, this can be a threatening thing, right? When you start hearing new things or in a new way, that can be like, okay, where's, where's he going with this? That kind of thing. And there's a, there's a book called Thoughts from the Mount of Blessings. And here, um, Ellen White just kind of captures the sentiment. She says this, that the rabbis saw that by his teaching, the speaking of Jesus' teaching, the whole tenor of the instruction they had given to the people was what? Set at naught. Would the Pharisees be feeling safe at this point? Yes or no? The rabbis are feeling threatened. They're like, whoa, 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 whoa. This guy, the way he's presenting things, this is like upsetting the basket, so to speak. And notice, he was tearing down the partition wall that had been so flattering to their pride and exclusiveness. And they feared that if permitted, he would draw the people entirely where? Away from them, all right? They're feeling like their influence is being lost. Their leadership is not being, uh, or their leadership is being discounted. That Jesus is presenting things that is actually tearing away at the distinctive lines that have made us who we are. Hey, what are you talking about? Salt of the earth. Why would we be considering the nations? Why, Why be light of the world? Hey, we just need to take care of what's our And so Jesus is presenting some things that have this flair of newness, uh, a flair of distinction, and all of this made it necessary for Jesus to say, okay, okay, I'm not here to throw everything out, right? I'm not here to destroy the law of the prophets. I'm here to fulfill them. Question, when he says law of the prophets, what what do you think he's referring to? The rule about not chewing gum in class? or what's, What's he talking, when he says law or the prophets, have you heard that phrase before? Um, maybe you've, say it again, books of Moses, yeah, 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 so he's talking about the sacred writings, right, the ancient scripture, the Old Testament scriptures, law of the prophets, uh, law and the prophets, that's a phrase that's used several times in the New Testament, even from the mouth of Jesus when he's talking to uh, various people, he's saying, um, hey, what's the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself, on these two things hang the whole Law and the prophets. So in the entirety of God's revealed will. You're in the book of Matthew, right? Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. If you have a Bible, a physical hard copy Bible, how much of your Bible relatively is the Old Testament? Yeah, yeah. The Old Testament is pretty large, right? Yeah, we were just talking about this uh, this week. And uh, I remember Sally and Justin and I, we were sitting studying the Bible, and Sally goes, wait, wait. Let me see your Bible. <laughs> Basically, two-thirds of the entire scripture is the Old Testament. And Jesus is essentially saying, hey, look, I didn't come to throw this out. This stuff is relevant. This stuff is not obsolete. This is permanent. And it's very interesting. Jesus says he doesn't come to destroy the significance of God's inspired revelation. He came to fulfill it, right? The word fulfill. Um, it's actually frequently used in the Gospel of Matthew, probably 14 times in the Gospel of Matthew, 
to describe certain dynamics of Jesus' life that when compared with the Old Testament, it's fulfilling a prophecy. Have you heard that before? Uh, so Matthew does this a lot. Actually, of all the gospel writers, Matthew is very intent on saying, whoa, what Jesus did fulfilled that. What Jesus did fulfilled that. Oh, man. I forgot to put a picture on the screen. Anyways, uh, I'll have to make that point another time. (laughs) But in other words, Jesus' life was fulfilling the Old Testament scriptures. These were not like old stories that had no meaning or no relevance. All throughout the ancient writings of the Old Testament, we find pointers to Jesus. Pointers to Jesus. In fact, turn with me in your Bible. Keep a a finger here in Matthew. Go to John. John chapter 5. So you go Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. John chapter 5, verse 39, there's something very interesting that Jesus says about these writings. John 5, verse 39. If you're there, say, I'm there. All right, I'm reading here. It says, I love it. You know, I got a, I got a red letter Bible. So there's tons of stuff that Jesus is saying here. And in the midst of this conversation that Jesus has, he says this to the religious leaders. You search the What? The scriptures, okay? You search the scriptures, and at that time, there was no New Testament, right? Everything that is scriptures, sacred writings, it's, it's what we have in our Old Testament, the law and the prophets. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of who? Of me. What? You mean the Old Testament isn't just about nations warring against other nations and God kicking out people? You mean the Old Testament isn't just about the blood of bulls and goats and stuff? No. The Old Testament is testifying about Jesus. All throughout the Old Testament, we have pointers to Jesus. And what Jesus is saying in in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, he's clarifying for everybody who's feeling as though Jesus is presenting something new, that means the rest is obsolete. No, he's clarifying that assumption. No, 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 no. This is not about throwing things out. This is not about destroying the law of the prophets. This is about fulfilling them showing the full meaning and force of them. His arrival, Jesus' arrival, hasn't lessened the significance of the Old Testament. In fact, his life, his death, his resurrection is actually bringing the Old Testament to the fullest significance and light. Um, In in Isaiah 42, actually, uh, it says that Jesus came to magnify God's law, to make it big, to let it take up the full horizon of our thoughts, The Law and the Prophets is not something um, to to consider as less significant, but because of Jesus, we can now see the full light of what it's all about. You know, when we follow Jesus then, we're talking about living led and, and how to follow Jesus and stuff. Living led does not mean that, okay, now that we're following Jesus, we don't need all this other stuff. Living led means now that we're following Jesus, all that other stuff is real. All that other stuff has new meaning and has new light. I don't know if you've ever done this before, but um, I remember sitting uh, in a seminar in which we had a guest speaker. His name was Doug Batchelor. I don't know if you've ever heard of that name before. But Doug Batchelor, he, he challenged us. We were uh, in a room full of theology majors, and he said, all right, guys, Jesus, did you know that Jesus is in all the Bible, right? And he pointed out that text in John 5, 39. Hey, these are they which testify of me. He makes this point. Jesus is in all the Bible. You don't believe me? Just ask. And so we start, uh, he challenged us to, to think of all these Old Testament stories, all these Old Testament narratives. And um, he would take each one and say, 
well, this is a pointer to Jesus in this way. <laughs> you know, anyways, uh, you'd have to rewind the tape and actually be there to, to catch the full significance of that. But what, someone said, uh, how about the story of Ruth and Naomi? You know, <laughs> Ruth and Boaz. And Doug Batchelor, uh, this guy, I mean, he's, he's a really great guy. If you don't know him, he used to be able to do back handsprings in his 50s and stuff. He's, he's a great guy. Anyways, but um, he started explaining how Boaz is a, uh, he was the kinsman redeemer of Ruth. He was the next in kin, and he was the only one who could purchase, or, you know, basically purchase the land and, and also provide for Ruth's uh, freedom, you know, Ruth's ability to kind of be reinstated into society, even though she was a widow and things like that. In the same way, there are texts in Isaiah that talk about Jesus being our kinsman redeemer. And it's like, what in the world? Anyway, so all these Old Testament passages, you just realize Jesus is in all the Bible. So as a follower of Jesus, we don't take this assumption and say, okay, because we have the New Testament, we don't need the Old Testament. Because I have the iPhone 7, I don't need the iPhone 6. It's not like that. No, 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 no. Because we have Jesus, now all of it has even brighter light. Do you follow that? I didn't come to destroy this, unloose it, unbind it, and throw it out. I came to fulfill it, bring it to the full. So if we're going to let Jesus be our leader and truly follow him, you know, live this life that is led by God, we should expect that the law and the prophets, that two-thirds of the old, you know, of, of the scripture, we should expect that the law and the prophets, the revelation of God's inspired will, the entirety of them, that we should expect those things to find increasing significance in our lives. We should have the effect of not destroying the law of the prophets, but actually fulfilling them to bringing the full significance of them to the world. In fact, uh, there's a really awesome prayer. Um, actually, let's open our Bibles to it. Psalm 119, or do I have it here? I think I have it. Psalm 119, verse 18. Awesome passage. And I want to encourage us to make this a prayer. Uh, it says, Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from where? From your law. And he's not just talking about the Ten Commandments. He's actually talking about the instruction. That word law in the Hebrew is talking about uh, Torah or the instruction, the entirety of God's revealed will. I love it. Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. I remember there was a time in my life uh, when I actually started remembering people's sermons. Uh, when I, you know, I, I grew up going to church and I heard lots of sermons week after week, but it was probably not until I was 18 that I actually started remembering people's sermons. Um, not to say that you guys can't listen and stuff, but anyways. <clears throat> but I remember uh, one preacher just kind of sharing with, with us his personal experience that every time he opens the Bible, he envisions those, these sparklers. He envisions that, God, there's just something alive here. And that visual has stuck with me. And I tell you what, when I began to open up God's word with a sense that there is something wondrous here, that there is something that is going to reveal Jesus to me, even in the Old Testament, that began to change the way I read the Bible. That began to change how much I read the Bible because of how much I desired to read the Bible. And so, make this your prayer. Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things, even from your law. The things that seem dry, the, th the things that seem like so ancient that I can't relate, it's not relevant or whatever. There is a picture of Jesus to be found in it. Do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. In verse 18, let's go back to Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, verse 18. Jesus continues, and he gets a little bit more specific in these next two verses. He, he narrows his focus a little bit. And he says, For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, 
one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Now he's talking, uh, as you notice in verse 19, he's getting specific about the instructive part of the law. Whoever teaches, or excuse me, verse 19, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So now within this, uh, this ancient body of, of writings, these ancient scriptures, Jesus is now focusing on those specific commandments, the, the Ten Commandments. He, he's talking about this. Hey, don't, don't think that, um, that even one jot or tittle, it's like the, the, J, uh, the dot over the J or the I over the I, you know, the little dot over the I. Uh, in, in the Greek text and in the Hebrew text, these were the smallest strokes of the pen. And he's saying, hey, not even one of those things will pass away until all is fulfilled. He says, heaven and earth may pass away, but, but not my word. In fact, remember, these are Jesus' words in the first place, right? Matthew 24, verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And so here, this connection, if we're connecting these things, he's talking about the commandments, he's talking about the law not passing. Well, this must be the words of Jesus himself. He's comparing it to, ha- I mean, we don't worry about the sky falling we don't worry about the earth like opening up and swallowing us and things like that, unless you're, well, anyways. Um, but, uh, but here's the reality. I mean, as certain as those things are, so is the permanence of Jesus' words. And here in Matthew 5, verses 18 and 19, it's specifically Jesus' words as given in the commandments, the Old Testament commandments. This is awesome. There's an assurance about the abiding nature of God's law. And I know maybe this is something that we're familiar with, but this is something that, man, I was reading a book uh, recently that has just reminded me that Satan's scheme, um, while he has many schemes, many devices, many ways to tempt, to lure, his essential thing is to separate us from the will of God. His attempt is to separate us from an abiding relationship with God. And where is it that we have the clearest expression of God's will? It's God's law. And so if he can cause us to disregard it, if he can cause us to um, even ignore it and be negligent of it, or to even just diminish its significance, he's accomplishing his purpose of causing us to depart from God's law. But Jesus gives us an assurance. There's an abiding relevance. There's an abiding validity to the entirety of God's law. Think about this. If God's law could simply pass away, there would be no Jesus or no need for Jesus to come and die for us on the cross. Think about this. Uh, when Jesus came, you remember what the angel told Mary? He says, You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their, from their sins. Right? If the law could simply just be brushed away, then there would be no sin. Right? If there's no speed limit that says this road is 35 miles an hour, then we could just do whatever we wanted on this road. Right? Not a good idea, right? Not a good idea. Um, But when there is a law, then we recognize that when we're outside of God's will. When there's no law, then there's there's no possibility of being outside of God's will. If God could simply brush away the law, there would be no sin. If there was no sin, there would be no need for Jesus to come and die for our sin. Do you follow how Satan is very tricky in this? Saying, hey, hey, hey. Let's kind of neglect or ignore or diminish the significance of the Ten Commandments. But... The very fact that Jesus came, the very fact that Jesus died on the cross, 
to fulfill the curse of the law. The very fact that he did that signifies the immutability and the permanence of God's law. God's law could never be done away with just by ignoring it. God's law had to be fulfilled and not destroyed. Do we we follow that today? That's why God wrote those Ten Commandments where? On an Etch-A-Sketch, was it? No, no, right? Tablets of stone. Wow. Tablets of stone to describe the permanence, the relevance, the abiding nature of God's law. In verse 19, it says that uh, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. It's very interesting that the greatness, our ability to abide in the kingdom of heaven, to surrender to the kingship of God, is directly correlated to our attitude to the law. It's directly related to how we approach God's law. And here's the problem again. Satan's scheme from the very beginning has been to diminish the significance of God's law. And I would say this, that Satan's scheme from the very beginning has been to cause us to feel that that law is restrictive. I was just reading in my devotions. Um, my devotional plan kicked back to the very beginning of the Bible. So I started with Genesis 1 and 2 yesterday and Genesis 3 today. Just reading that story again and just how... Adam and Eve had everything, right? It was called the Garden of Eden. And do you know that Eden means paradise? It means pleasure. It means, like, utmost pleasure. Anyways, they had everything. And yet in Genesis chapter 3, Satan's first line, do you remember it? He says, Has God said not to eat of every tree of the garden? What did God actually say? Do you remember you can have everything. Just, just stay away from that one, right? The one that will give you the knowledge of both good and evil. You don't want that one, right? And yet, Satan's suggestion, Satan's insinuation is that God is trying to hold back all the trees, <laughs> including this one. And that's, that's the thing. From the very beginning, Satan has sought to make us feel that God's laws, that God's rules, that God's commandments are somehow limiting our freedom and our ability to live life to the full. And yet, when Jesus clarifies the picture of who God is, here in his earthly ministry, John 10, verse 10, I love this, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He's talking about Satan. But I have come, Jesus says, I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. You think about that word abundantly, a bund, a bound, without boundaries. That's what God wants for us. He said, hey, have this whole garden. But then there's this one. You really don't want it. So if God's going to give us rules, he's going to give us rules so that we can have life abundant. Right? Uh, this week, I, I mentioned that we went camping near Steamboat Springs. Awesome, awesome trip. But there was this one tree. Uh, we had great shade over our campsite, which is really, really nice. And um, there was this one tree that actually had some uh, chicken wire. Not chicken wire. It was, it was more substantial than that. It was, it was fenced around. Um, it was nice and tall. And it was a great climbing tree, actually, as Jenna and Debbie and Jaden found out. <laughs> um, but there was, a, there was something that kind of bothered me about the fact that there was fencing around the trunk. And I was like, hmm, maybe, maybe we shouldn't be on that. Um, and as Debbie was further up in the tree, she realized that there were dead branches and things like that. And so I said, hey, guys, let's, let's not climb this tree. 
Um, <clears throat> was I trying to take away their fun, yes or no? Yes, I was trying to make their life miserable, right? <laughs> no, no. I wanted to make sure that they didn't fall 15 feet to the ground, okay? Um, I wanted to make sure that they continued to experience abundant life without hindrance or harm. As parents, we, we know this, right? You, you give some prohibitions. Hey, don't, don't, don't go there. Don't do this. Don't hang out with that person. And it's not like you're trying to rob your child of every joy in the world. You want them to experience the best and never to experience the brokenness. And when God gives us ten simple commandments, He's wanting us to experience the best life possible. Can anybody remember one of the commandments? Just kind of, yeah, which one? Honor your your father and mother. Okay, can you imagine a world in which that commandment was never, ever broken? What would that be like? Oh, sunshine, blessed sunshine, right? (laughs) Lots of sunshine in the home, right? You'd have amazing dinner time. There'd be no arguments and things like that. There would just be this sense of, wow, we are on the same team. You wouldn't be pulling your hair out, wondering where your kids are and things like that. (laughs) Imagine that. Imagine a world in which God says, or that commandment on your father and mother is never broken. Would that be a restricted life, yes or no? No, it'd be the, an awesome life. Imagine a world in which uh, no one ever broke the command, thou shalt not steal. Woo! What, what would be different about that? Wouldn't have to lock your car. Your That's right. Actually, here in Alaska, is it Alaska? That you're supposed to leave your cars unlocked just in case there are bears that come out. People need a place to hide. Anyways, yes. <laughs> It'd be like Alaska. No. <laughs> but here's the point. These commandments, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, we, we would love a world where that was never, ever violated. These are violations that God says, hey, this is going to take away your freedom. This is going to harm your life. And that's why, oh, man, um, I think I, we put these up here. Beautiful passages. Psalm 119, verse 32. Again, if you've never read Psalm 119, it's actually the longest chapter in all of Scripture, right? And if you've read it before, you know that David, the psalmist, is just in love with God's law. And that's what he's singing about throughout the entire 190-something verses of that, of that chapter. And here's one of, the, one of the... What is it? Thanks. Debbie wrote a scripture song to the entire chapter. It's cool. Okay, not a scripture song, many scripture songs. But here, here's verse 32. It says, I will run the course of your what? Of your commandments, for you shall enlarge my heart. In the English Standard Version, there's a little footnote that says, you shall set my heart free. I love it. When we run the path of God's commandments, it doesn't restrict us. It doesn't like, oh, I can't, I can't, I can't. No, it gives us the ability to set our hearts free. That's why James 1.25, notice how James is talking about the law. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, this one will be blessed in what he does. When we talk about God's law, we're talking about a law of liberty. We're talking about a God who wants us to live the best life possible. And so here's the essential Uh, Reality. We're talking about living led. The life that is led by God embraces God's law of liberty. 
He's not allergic to it. <laughs> we actually embrace it. And according to verse 19, we actually teach it to others too. The, the life when we're really led by God, we will embrace God's law as a law of liberty. Not as a law of, okay, I must in order to gain God's favor. No, but because God has been gracious to me, I can now live free in these ways. We will embrace God's law of liberty. We'll want God's values to be our values. We'll, we'll want uh, God's heart to be our moral compass and to run in his ways and find that our heart is set free. I love that picture. So how do we do this? How then do we actually embrace God's law? Uh, the reality is, um, there's a text in Romans chapter 8, verse 7, that says that the carnal heart, the natural heart, uh, as we are by default, it's at enmity with God's law. The word enmity, it's that feeling of hostility between enemies. You know, um, The last time that you gave a dirty look to your neighbor, that was enmity. No, I'm kidding. Anyway, <laughs> um, so here's the thing. The natural heart... When it looks at God's law, it looks at it with a wrinkled eyebrow. It looks at it with this, it's, it, there's a resistance there. That's the natural heart. So how then do we embrace God's law and find liberty in that? Um, first answer, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, it, he, he tells us, again, another contrasting statement. If you're still there in Matthew 5, verse 20, it says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of who? You guys have it there? Yeah, of the scribes and Pharisees. Unless your righteousness exceeds the, uh, the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So how do we embrace God's law of liberty? Well, first contrasting statement, don't be like the Pharisees. <laughs> the question is, how are the Pharisees relating to God's law? And how can I not do that? Or maybe the second thing is, don't even let people whether they be scribes or Pharisees or great religious leaders, don't even let people take the place of who God is in your life. Don't let those people become your role models in such a way that they become the standard, they become the norm. People are going to fail you, but God will never fail you. So how do we embrace God's law of liberty? Um, In some way, we've got to be different than the Pharisees. So the question is, what was their relationship to the law? The scribes and the Pharisees, what was their relationship to the law? One thing that we know for sure is that their approach to the law was definitely not a liberating one. It was a burdensome one. Um, Actually, later on in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 23, verse 4, notice that Jesus is kind of, he's actually talking to the scribes and Pharisees specifically in this chapter. And he says that they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear. And lay them on people's shoulders. He's not talking about physically and literally. He's talking about these instructions, these commands, these these oral traditions and things like that. And lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Not even willing to lift a finger, he's basically saying. Here's the thing. The Pharisees, if you know anything about the Pharisees of the first century AD, they spent their entire lives studying the law and hoping to keep the law to the T. They, they, they spent their entire lives... Here, here's a quote from a commentary I, I read. Pharisees spent their entire lives meditating upon the law and seeking to live up to its demands. They were totally dedicated religionists. Not only did they discover 613 commandments in the books of Moses, but they also built up a massive array of oral traditions or oral law to support them. Here's the thing. 
the Pharisees, first century AD, they remembered their history. They remembered that when they departed as a people, when they departed from God's will, they were sent into Babylonian captivity. And so when they came back from captivity, they wanted to make sure that they would never give God reason to send them back into captivity. Okay? And so Pharisees took it upon themselves to be zealous about making sure that they as a people stayed within God's law, stayed within God's will. And so they scoured the Old Testament scriptures and they found in the books of Moses alone 613 instructions, 613 directives, okay? And in order to keep from transgressing any one of those, they came up with all sorts of interpretations and oral traditions to make sure that you never got close to breaking one of those 613. Does that make sense? This is a lot to keep track of. I don't know, maybe that makes your mind just hurt. Like, oh man, I, I can remember 10, or can I remember 10? You know, those kinds of things. And, and so here's, that's where the Pharisees were at. And for Jesus to say, hey, your righteousness needs to exceed that. <laughs> the people are probably thinking, what? <laughs> you know, and, and here's the reality. Jesus' hearers must have asked themselves, do we need more? Do we need more than 613 plus the, the, you know, the midrash or whatever they called their oral traditions and stuff like that? Do we need more? And the answer to that is no. No, no, no. When Jesus is talking about exceeding the Pharisees' righteousness, he's not talking about exceeding the quantity, but the quality of their righteousness. Did you catch that? He's not talking about exceeding their quantity, but the quality of of their righteousness. Let's talk a little bit about this. Quantity versus quality. Here's the thing. When we consider, when we start viewing righteousness and obedience in terms of quantity, then we come up with lists, checklists, itemizing, quantifying. And we're able to say, okay, once I've done this, 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 and the other, then I'm righteous. And here's how the Pharisees approach these things. Okay, if, if the, for one day all of God's people would not break one of the commandments of God, then we would see the Messiah. That's kind of like what their messianic hope was all about. So in itemizing and quantifying righteousness, the Pharisees had assumed, as a result of that, they had assumed an itemizing and quantifying approach to sin. That if I don't do this, and I don't do this, and I don't do this, then I'm not sinning. Does that kind of make sense? I mean, these are sentiments that, uh, you know, that we might even resonate with. And here's the reality. They saw sin as a list of violations that ought to be avoided. But they failed to see sin as a heart condition that needed to be converted. I'll say that again, okay? Because, you know, as I described the Pharisees itemizing and quantifying, you're like, okay, that's, that's not a bad thing. But listen to the result of this. They saw sin as a list of violations that ought to be avoided, but they failed to see sin as a heart condition that needed to be converted. And what happens when we quantify sin, when we quantify righteousness, is that we end up with two extremes. Either the Pharisaic extreme of a false sense of security, that once I've gotten all the checklists completed, then I'm good. And it leads to a sense of spiritual pride. Definitely far from the poor in spirit side of the spectrum, right? 
The other result is that it could end up with someone just feeling so frustrated by a sense of inability. So frustrated by the burden, like Matthew 23 said, by the burden of obedience that I could never save myself. I could never live up to this. Those are the two extremes. The Pharisaic spiritual, spiritual pride or just the, the, the legalistic, I could never do this. And both of those extremes rely upon self to get themselves out of it. <clears throat> Question. Do we ever find ourselves in either of those extremes? In either of those boats? Kind of feeling like, oh, yeah, I, I got this. Well, I didn't do that today. I'm good. You know? <laughs> or if you've ever been at that point where you're just like, man, that's never something that I'm ever going to attain. Um, the reality is this, that that kind of righteousness, God, Jesus speaking, says, we need to exceed that. Not just be content with quantifying righteousness, but be focused on approaching the law and righteousness in terms of quality. So let's talk about that. How then, how then do we not approach the law in terms of quantity, but we approach it in terms of quality? Let me suggest this. When we do more than quantifying righteousness, what happens is we approach the law with a focus not so much on what I have to do or how little I can get by with, you know, the whole minimalist approach. Our focus instead will be on the quality and the character behind the instruction. Yeah. Okay. This sounded a lot better on paper. <laughs> but let, let, me, let me see if I can... Okay. Instead, our focus will be on the quality and character behind God's law, whether my heart lines up with God's heart. Our focus shifts from the external, um, act, uh, from the external actions to the internal motives. Yeah? When we f- fix our eyes on quantity, okay, have I done this? Have I done this? Have I done this? Notice where the focus is. It's on the action, and it's on me. When we fix our eyes on quality... What is God's heart behind this? Our focus is not on our action, nor is it on ourselves. It's on the character of God. And so when we shift that focus, we'll see sin in terms of not just what I've done and what I haven't done, but we'll see sin in terms of heart and motive. We'll see sin in terms of condition that needs to be redeemed, not a list that needs to be fulfilled. We'll see our need then for heart surgery, so to speak. And we'll see our need for a Savior. And that's why Romans, you know, in in the book of Romans, Paul says that um, the end of the law is Christ. In other words, the goal, the the, the goal point, the, the whole purpose of the law is to lead us to a Savior. The whole purpose of the law is to lead us to this poor in spirit position that hungers and thirsts for God's righteousness, that craves for God to give us a righteousness that is not our own, that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, that is only from God himself. Really awesome promise. In Jeremiah 31, God gives this promise way back in the Old Testament to a people who are still trying to figure themselves out, that they were people facing captivity, and he says this, but this is the covenant. This is the promise. This is the agreement. This is, this is what I'm going to commit myself to. That I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my what? My law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. How, how do we embrace God's law of liberty? It's not going to happen as you do more. 
Sorry to break the news to you. <laughs> it's not going to happen as you struggle harder. It's not going to happen as you try and try and fail and fail. It's going to happen as we look to God's promise. I will write my law in their minds. I will put it on their hearts. That's God's promise. That's what God wants to do. The question is, do we want him to do it? (laughs) That's God's covenant. Do you want to enter into that covenant? Do you want God's law to be that moral compass in your heart that says, man, it's not so much out here that I'm trying to reach, but it's in here that is caught, like it is compelling me to live the free life. That's what Jesus wants for us. When we're led by God, when we're led by God, the life that is led by God will embrace God's law of liberty. <clears throat> Simple questions today. The liberty that we long for, you know, it's found not in throwing out the law, or, you know, it's not, it's not in throwing it out, but in having it written in our hearts. Then we'll be free to live the full life. I want to find, God, I want to, I want to find liberty in God's law. How about you? I want to find my heart enlarging as a result of running in the path of God's commandments. Not because this is something that I am able to do, but this is something that God promises to do. So the simple question is, do you want God's promise to be fulfilled in your life? Do you want that? I want to give you two simple takeaways. If if, if it really is your desire to let God's promise be fulfilled, to find liberty in God's law. Two simple takeaways as we've just kind of looked at these few verses here in Matthew 5. Takeaway number one. Let your relationship with God Involve a growing reverence for the entirety of God's word. For the entirety of God's word. We talked about this earlier, right? The prayer of Psalm 119, verse 32. Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. Don't indulge the attitude that some portions of the word are irrelevant or less significant. Instead, seek to bring those things that are hard to understand or things that don't seem very significant to you. Seek to bring those to their full meaning. Seek to fulfill them. And again, pray that prayer. Study God's word with this simple prayer. Uh, with, like, like the preacher that I heard when I was younger. Study God's word with this anticipation that there, there's life there. You know? Hebrews 4 verse 12. The word of God is living and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword. And when I realized that for myself, man, it became personal. It became powerful. Um, <clears throat> so, study God's word with this, this sense of awe, the sense of wonder. Um, let your relationship with God involve a growing reverence for the entirety of God's word. Takeaway number two. Takeaway number two. Approach the law and approach righteousness, not in terms of quantity, but in terms of quality. In other words, when you're wanting to abide in God's will, look at not what you need to do, but the heart of God in those instructions. Seek the righteousness that gets to the root of the heart and motive. Seek the kind of righteousness that, that only God can give. It's the new heart. It's the new mind. It's, it's the, the mind that has God's law written and embedded. The, the hard drive that's been rewritten. And so, approach God's law in terms of quality and character rather than quantity and checklists. Two simple takeaways as we seek to fulfill or to let God fulfill this promise to write his law on our hearts. 